Hello and welcome back to another rip-roaring season of Guido Talks, the show that brings you all the news behind the news from the last week on the Guido Forks website. My name's Tom Harwood and once again I'm joined by Guido Forks founder and editor Paul Staines and reporter Christian Cowgey. So, without further ado, I think it's probably best in a very busy news week already to go for our most read story this week. And this was a bit of a peculiar one, because it was one that was not picked up very widely in the mainstream press, apart from on (laughs) Lord Alan Sugar's uh, Twitter feed. So, uh, Paul, do you want to tell us a bit about this? Yeah, this is uh, Lord Sugar's nemesis, Piers Morgan. He went very quiet over Christmas and uh, actually formally said, I'm signing off Twitter. That's like cutting off his nose for him because he's never quiet on Twitter for two weeks. Anyway, uh, a little bit suspicious and fancy that we got a tip that he was in Antigua. And um, I tweeted him over Christmas saying, are you in Antigua, Piers? No response. That's also very unlikely. And um, he, because he follows all our Twitter accounts very closely. And uh, specifically, someone replied to me privately and saying he's on Jumbi Island Resort having the time of life. Now, Jumbi Island is a small island that's very exclusive, very expensive, just south, just north of Antigua itself. So you can't get there except by boat. So it's even more private than um, the sunny island itself, which I suspect is kind of handy if you don't want the embarrassment of being caught on holiday in Antigua over the Christmas break when you've been calling for lockdowns and the government has advised no travel. Now, it was in the tier three period just before London went into tier four, but it was still the case that the government was advising no travel unless absolutely essential. Now, I don't know about you, but... Is it really essential for Piers to be topping up his suntan? And funny enough, on the Monday when he got back, someone in TV remarked to me that he was the only person intelligent who has um, makeup on that made him look paler. He looked like uh, one of those <laughs> Japanese Habushiki actresses, you know, or actors. I don't know what you call. It was it, it was like Widow Twanky. <laughs> By the end of the week, he was a bit more tanned. Um, anyway, Piers, we know where you were. Uh, well done on keeping it out of the tabloids and avoiding the K. Burley treatment. But we're watching you. We know. <laughs> and on that ominous note, I think that's probably best where we leave that story there. Um, because we had another enormous story this week. We were, um, this is a- another one that wasn't uh, widely reported across uh, the newspapers, but we were the first to report on the talk radio uh, station owned by News UK, um, having their channel where they um, they stream all of their content uh, on YouTube taken down. So they had about a quarter of a million subscribers vanish into thin air, all their videos removed, and it appears to be that it was it, it was um, because YouTube claimed it violated their COVID policy in terms of um, breaching rules about what you're allowed to talk about, whether you're allowed to um, oppose local health guidance on this sort of thing. And this was um, quite concerning, really, but it, but about uh, 20 hours later or so, uh, the evening after the sort of midnight takedown, um, 
finally that was reinstated. It sounds like, or at least it, it, it feels like there have been some quite um, high profile people uh, leaning on the executives at Google to get that overturned. And the worry is that would that be the same for a smaller outfit, one that didn't have the ear of government or the uh, influence of News Corp? Um, it's a it's a worrying story because it looks like YouTube is going down a bit more of a censorious uh, angle. Mm. None, of us I, dis- none of us are disputing that YouTube are within their rights to set their own rules in their own house. But I feel that now Twitter and YouTube and Facebook are kind of the public square that it's, they, they've got to be more responsible about how they exercise this and not just... Uh, take down content that other people don't like. Mm. And of course, and if- this particular policy is is really concerning when it comes to um, government-sanctioned advice or guidance when it comes to COVID-19. Because of course, in the early stages of this pandemic, the government-sanctioned guidance was that uh, you shouldn't wear a mask, you shouldn't buy masks. Actually, they were taking down adverts saying that masks can help uh, reduce the spread of COVID-19, only to then U-turn a few months later. Um, it, it's a worrying precedent to say that you can't have a discussion at least about this kind of stuff. And it comes in the context within uh, the last hour or so, of course, we're filming this on Thursday afternoon, that Mark Zuckerberg has just uh, unilaterally banned um, Donald Trump from Instagram and Facebook as well. And we'll come on to the situation in America. But of course, it feeds into that wider thing of if they wanted to, you've got very, very powerful CEOs who could, within entirely within their right, silence, uh, you know, a, a senior elected figure or indeed an Ofcom regulated broadcaster if it goes against their personal brand values. I don't think it's good business sense either because already you've seen Parler. I'm not on Parler because it was full of people I don't want to be next to. Uh, you know, as an alternative to Twitter. There are already other video services that are um, developing and you'll have all this fragmented me, social media, just like we have fra- fragmented uh, broadcasters, you know, left-wing broadcasters, right-wing broadcasters, particularly in America, we will start having fragmented social media as well. If you yeah, thought it's already in social media bubbles, you can imagine five years down the line where there's no interaction at all because you've got the right-wingers on Parler, you've got the left-wingers on Twitter, and no one has a clue what anyone believes or why they believe it anymore. Well, I let's, have a let's take some perspective here because Twitter's only been mainstream for about six years or so. We're still in the incredibly early days, and I think perhaps the pendulum's swinging um, a bit more one way than the other now, but we're going to reach some sort of settlement where... Um, where tech CEOs sort of realise that there is a valuable um, user base in in terms of keeping uh, obviously those who who breach the law in terms of hate speech and stuff off off those sites, but not when it comes to um, things that might just be disagreeable. Mm. But you know, people try and no platform us and say we're far right. When <laughs> I think I think Calgary in particular is drippingly wet. You know, so it's, it's who's. Who's who is the extremist? You know, when everybody is calling everybody else an extremist, you know it's kind of dangerous ground to start picking and choosing. That's what the First Amendment was all about. Well, speaking of dangerous ground and potential arrests, we can go back to Westminster now because Kalki, there was a story of an MP who was actually arrested this week. What happened? Yes, well, it was very 
very belated justice because Margaret Ferrier, the former SNP who famously came down with COVID symptoms on one day, travelled down to Westminster the next, got a positive COVID vaccine and then got back on a train to scuttle up back to Scotland, has finally been arrested by the Scottish police for uh, culpable and reckless conduct uh, over her journey to and from Scotland. Um, I wasn't particularly convinced I'd, uh, that we would see justice over this because I believe the Metropolitan Police fairly swiftly uh, ruled it out of their wheelhouse, uh, something they were going to clamp down on. But yes, there was an arrest, there was a charge, so she could be named and this um, broke earlier in the week and we've just got to see, hopefully, that some justice can be brought because she's already had the whip withdrawn. The SNP leadership can't do anything more and under the current rules of being an MP, uh, unless she got a very long prison sentence or fizzled her expenses, there would be no actual way uh, for, her, uh, for her constituents to have a say before the next election. What's the prison term that gets you uh, taken off? Is it six months? It's it's a it's a decent length of time, yeah. Um, it's not going to get six so, months, is she? So. Oh, it may may still not be um, enough. Incredible. All the more reason to back the real recall bill that was um, a private member's bill, I think, five or so years ago, that was being pushed by Zach Goldsmith and Douglas Carswell. But that's ancient history now. Um, there's there's very little reason as to why a government with a massive majority would push through an accountable system like that. Um, but moving on, we've had some big news around this week comparatively between the UK vaccine rollout, because of course the Oxford vaccine started being rolled out uh, this week in the UK, and with the lamentable rollout within the European Union. I think we're, I'm right in saying that France has only managed around 300 vaccinations. 300 vaccinations in how many weeks now for the entire country of a similar population to the UK, where we've done 1.3 million. Now, the curious thing about this is that there's one country in the European Union that seems to be doing a bit better than all of the other countries in the European Union, and that's Germany. And when you dig down and look and see why the German numbers are proportionally a lot higher than uh, the other countries in the European Union, still far less, far lower than the UK, but, but climbing, um, it's because they decided what Britain did was actually something that, that could be replicated and could be copied. The, the German government decided to unilaterally a few months ago, uh, outside of the, the common EU scheme that all 28 EU states supposedly had, had signed up to, uh, they decided to buy vaccines unilaterally by themselves um, around the back of all the other EU nations and therefore had more to start with. And now the other story this week was that the German government are looking to the UK's single dose vaccine regimen, that, that is having a longer dose before you have, a, a longer time period before you have your second dose to get more people having their first dose, which, uh, which offers a decent degree of protection already so that they can cover a wider array of people. Now, um, by, by doing that, it looks like they've followed two things that Brexit Britain has done. I wonder how many more the Germans are going to decide uh, the UK's called right uh, over the last couple this, of years. This is going to be a big issue in Europe over the next few weeks because all the other countries have realised, I mean, for instance, Ireland, on current plans, 
uh, agree with the EU, is going to, by the end of March, have vaccinated 1.27% of the population, which means to get herd immunity at this rate, it's going to take something like five years. Now, obviously, there'll be more supply, but the anger is palpable. And, you know, there's screams from business in uh, in Ireland saying, when are we going to be able to open up if we're vaccinating at this rate? And I think that's the same in a lot of countries. Absolutely. We've, we've and that's not plenty of stories about how the European Commission has been sort of penny pinching when it comes to procuring vaccines, rejecting offers of hundreds of millions of doses because they didn't want to pay a slightly higher rate. Well, actually, if you compare how costly a vaccine is compared to the cost of lockdown, which all of these European countries are in and will yeah. be in until they get vaccinated, there is no comparison. Of course, it's better to pay slightly more for a vaccine and get it slightly sooner. It's, it's a no brainer, but it's a no brainer that the EU Commission dropped the ball on. And let's not forget so, that a couple of so weeks ago, Israel didn't bother um, worrying about the price because uh, Bibi Netanyahu has got an election in two months' time. So he wants to vaccinate as many people as he can, and he does not care about the price. So, you know, penny pinching was probably not the best idea. And of course, the other thing about this is, is who is getting vaccinated is incredibly important, not just the numbers. And now in the UK, we've been focusing on getting those over 80s vaccinated first because they account for a much uh, higher proportion of deaths than any other age group. Um, whereas in, in countries like Italy and even America, actually, that hasn't been the case. Um, we, we, we ran a story about how Italy has proportionally vaccinated many, many more times um, sort of under 40 year olds than over 80 year olds. And so even if they had carried out as many vaccinations as the UK has done, they would have nowhere near the same sort of impact on lowering deaths. So really, it looks like even though there have been certainly some big failures in, in the UK's response to coronavirus in the early stages, when it comes to rolling out the vaccine, it looks like the UK in terms of who is getting the vaccine, how fast it's it's coming out, and, and how it's been procured has done a lot better than the EU. But it's not just uh, the EU that's been bungling the response to a vaccine rollout, because here in Britain, we've had an absolutely incredible show from various Labour MPs who have been putting their foot in it left, right and centre. Um, we've had at least four or five examples now. Uh, over the Christmas break, we had Labour uh, Shadow Minister Rosina Allen Khan falsely accusing Vaccine Minister Nadim Sahawi of uh, getting the vaccine early, sneaking it in, uh, only to have to delete that tweet several hours later. We had another Labour MP uh, over the Christmas break jumping the queue. Uh, in, I think it was uh, Birmingham, only to uh, have local NHS leaders implore constituents not to follow the advice because you cannot secure a vaccine that way. And at any rate, any leftover vaccines are meant to be reserved for NHS workers. Uh, and then, of course, we had the, the zenith of this story, which was a Zoom clip that we put out uh, earlier this week of former Labour chair Ian Lavery saying who would have faith in the vaccine and pushing this absurd conspiracy that they have not gone through sufficient regulatory checks as we should expect. And this was on the same day that 
the leader of the opposition was on GMB calling for a law to stop anti-vaccine conspiracies being spread. And there was a very quick and sort of bungled, not even half apology from Ian Lavery. But this made um, a lot of people, especially on the left, really angry. Oh, it's outrageous. Uh, also, it's another Labour MP. Was that, was that not a good impersonation? Oh, outrageous. I don't know what he says half the time. I need it subtitling. It's... You're from his part of the world, aren't you? Uh, another Labour MP. This is anti-Durham bias and I won't take it. Another Labour MP on a Zoom call that we recorded saying we quote them out of context. I don't know how it could be contextualised as being anti anything other than anti-vax. Uh, In fact, to, to uh, contextualise it, shall we just play the clip now so everyone can hear the unadulterated yeah, words of the former chair of the Labour Party? It's absolutely outrageous, sir. Why would anybody have any confidence in the vaccines? You know, uh, to be honest, I want people to take the vaccines. I really, really do, and it's important. But, you know, I have got concerns about how these vaccines have come, into, uh, come onto the market when it would normally take 10 years, it has took four months. It normally takes three or four years to pass through the regulatory procedures. Mm. It's taken, it hasn't taken three or four weeks. Ian Lavery, of course, is not the only person who's anti-vaccine. Anyway, James Dunningpole, a Breitbart columnist who you may have seen in places like The Spectator and Once Upon a Time on Andrew Neil's show, getting absolutely humiliated. He is openly anti-vaccination and he won't mind me saying that because he thinks we are uh, making a big mistake getting vaccinated. It's some kind of global reset uh, conspiracy that uh, Bill Gates is putting microchips in our head. I, I don't know. He, he's completely lost the plot. He's, he's currently in shock because he was convinced that uh, Trump was going to be president come today. He has gone pretty far, and I'm getting a bit worried for him, because he publicly exhorting his 86-year-old father not to get vaccinated. I'm not sure that's the smartest move. I, mean, I hope it all goes fine, but I, I think uh, exhorting old people not to get the vaccination is irresponsible, to say the least. He's not the only one who's anti-vaccination. Uh, Piers Corbyn, um, who has a long-term well, I can't use another word, lunatic, has been um, going around breaking the, the, the COVID um, curfew, organising demonstrations, socialising, you name it, he's done it. Uh, you know, there's all these types, uh, Dellingpole, Piers Corbyn, David Icke is back with his um, theories about, uh, you know, the lizards are going to take us over via the vaccinations they're not helping themselves one little bit and it's all rolling up into a general distrust of authority that a lot of people i worry who are usually sympathetic to us readers of ours are coming to believe in and i think it's a factor that they're in these social media bubbles they're going down youtube wormholes they libertarians on the right are naturally suspicious of government but there comes a point where you've got to look at the situation and unmute reality to coin a phrase because all this stuff about Bill Gates uh, trying to take over the world is crazy it's nonsense stop yourself you know get real and of course the, the aspect of the 
uh, Piers Corbyn stories that he is now running for mayor against Sadiq Khan. Oh, yeah. I actually think if we ran a poll of our comments section, uh, he'd prove a very popular choice. Um, he's pro-Assange, he's anti-lockdown, he's anti-mask, he's, um, uh, you know, but all the sprinkling of the sort of left-wing Corbynism as you'd expect, it's ticking a lot of boxes. Christian, I'd like to defend not, our not... readership. Only 1% of the readership is in the comments. Comments. I said comments. Yeah, most most readers of, of Guido Fawkes don't agree, but also not just the readers of Guido Fawkes, but the country. I mean, the percentage of people who are anti-vaccine in this country compared to France or America or most other places in the world is incredibly low. We're very lucky in this country that uh, the, the vaccine rollout is in is is going ahead with enormous take up and completely voluntarily, uh, which is a marvellous thing because that's the way that you bring people on board. And actually, if you look within Parliament, I don't think outside of the, the fruitcakes in the Labour Party, there's been a single person who has promoted kind of scepticism towards the vaccine. Actually, the lockdown sceptic people, the people who are really genuinely and rightfully worried about the state of our economy, are some of the most pro-vaccine people in Parliament. It's the Steve Bakers and the Mark Harpers of the world in the COVID recovery group who are urging the government to uh, get, get to, to, to drop the sort of two million a day target and, and get up to a six million a week target, I should have said a week, uh, a week target in order to get us vaccinated enough to open everything back up again uh, by the time we get to March. Now, that is a massive, massive contrast to a lot of European countries and America as well, where there is a sort of political divide over the vaccine. But here, thankfully, everyone from actually Nigel Farage, who earlier this week suggested we should bring Tony Blair, this was a surprise, he suggested that we should bring Tony Blair in to run the the uh, vaccine programme. I'm not sure that's probably the best idea. I think we're getting some more news that there's going to be some more military involvement because, of course, their logistics are superb. So that's probably the best way to go. But everyone from it's Nigel Farage that. right through to Tony Blair, all agreeing, all singing from their same hymn sheet, these vaccines are the way to get us to normality. Uh, James Dunningpole tweeted out in response to uh, Nigel Farage endorsing uh, uh, Tony Blair as some kind of vaccine star that Nigel Farage was control controlled opposition. I, when you think Nigel Farage is too left wing, you've really lost the plot. It's all right anyway, because as you say, the army's being rolled in and Blair will, you know, give military involvement his full endorsement. Um, as long as it sort of gets some oil or something along the way. I think we're going down too many Ben Wallace-themed um, conspiracy tracks now. So, so let's, get, let's get back on track. Um, and and Kaugi, um the Labour Party's had a bit of a mare this week. They've, they've dropped in approval in terms of how the country would see them uh, managing the pandemic. So has the government, but so has the opposition. Why is that? Well, it, it's, it's largely because one of the best U-turns, you know, I've seen in a very long time. At 10 o'clock, or rather early, 9 o'clock uh, on the 4th, Kate Green, the Shadow Education Secretary, was sent out to do a morning media round, and she said, we do not want schools to close, we're not calling for schools to close, it would add to the chaos. Kel surprise. Uh, 8 p.m. that day, Keir Starmer was calling for the schools to close. Why? Because number 10 Downing Street 
who, let's be fair, had also done a Darcy Bustle-esque pirouette U-turn that day, just before 8pm, had also called and briefed out that schools would be closing. And it was, you know, so transparently, you know, caught Labour off guard and thought, we've got to get ahead of this, that this impromptu sit-down press briefing was called where Keir Starmer did a 180 and dubbed, uh, you know, uh, through Kate Green, uh, you know, into it. And it was hilarious. There's no other way of putting it. Yeah, absolutely. It is bonkers to see that this week where we have some of the, you know, the highest COVID infection rates in the world, where the, the unambiguously the government has U-turned quite a bit. We actually saw a poll this week that has the Tory party five points ahead of all the other parties. Now, this was largely down, I think everyone can accept, to the Brexit deal bounce. And um, Paul, we ran a bit of a story about what was going on with uh, with the Kent border uh, as a response yes. to this Brexit deal. Yes, well, uh, the BBC has not been um, much of a believer in Brexit going very well. And accordingly, they set up a specialist BBC Brexit live blog, which was going to record all the disasters that were going to befall the country um, after Brexit. And they started it up just after Christmas, after the deal was done. It's quite quiet. Anyway, on the first day after the New Year, they were down in Dover to, to see the chaos. And instead, they saw trucks flowing through. Admittedly, not that many first day back, but there was no problems. And the trucks were flowing through as easily as Remainer's tears. And um, the, the live blog, which started at 5 a.m. in the morning with pictures of the port, was basically shut up shop by 10 a.m. Um, because, well, there was no bad news to report. And that seemed to be the whole view. In fact, if you look this week, which is the first week back after Brexit, um, yeah, where's all the stories of chaos on our TV screens and our newspapers? None. It turns out being. It's, it turns out the only business model that's been hurt by Brexit has been the BBC's. Yes. Um, uh, but well, it was my account. I said to my accountant when the deal was done, I'm in Ireland and I sell services. Uh, you know, what will have to change, you know, invoicing Britain or whatever? And he said, nothing. So I don't know what, what other com companies' problems are, but um, mine are few and far between. And it wasn't the only BBC chaos this week, because we also got hands on a internal bulletin that showed that BBC employees who have to go into work are going to be forced to wear anti-COVID tracking devices around their necks that will beep if they get within two metres of someone else with one of these tracking devices. They're sort of like uh, anti-COVID ASBOs that they're being forced to wear. Um, I don't know if we've got any plans to introduce those, Paul. No, no. But think how useful it would have been if they'd have had that in the days of Jimmy Savile. <laughs> My God. Would have well, saved them a lot of problems. I think because we're running out of time on this podcast now, we'd probably better jump to what's going on in America, which, of course, has been a pretty historic uh, evening on Wednesday evening. Um, and we ran a story that morning about the Georgia uh, runoff elections for Senate, which let's be real, the, the Georgia's a deeply Republican state. They've got a Republican state house, a Republican governor. Um, it should have been 
the case that the Republicans won those seats and maintained control of the Senate, denying Joe Biden unified government and being able to keep a sense of moderation and bipartisanship when it comes to governing over the next at least two years. And yet, the Republicans managed to let the let, let the races fall through their fingers, um, mainly because we wrote, um, Donald Trump kept saying he won the presidential election, that there was all of this fraud. And there were a great number of Republicans who, as a result, stayed home, either because they were disgusted by the behavior of the president for not accepting the legitimacy of a democratic election, or because they thought their votes would be thrown away if they bothered to vote anyway. It seems like the president's intervention following uh, November has done more harm than good in terms of being able to retain a little bit of power on Capitol Hill. Look, I'm no cephalogical expert on Georgia state's politics, but it seems to me that uh, the reason they lost it must have been Trump related. Uh, why else would they have lost a traditional state? And, um, you know, it's kind of kind of made me a bit more worried now because I was quite relaxed about President Biden because I figured he wouldn't be able to do much damage to the America if the Senate was a blocking force and he had to get legislation through that was bipartisan. Now he's got all three branches of the uh, of the government and uh, who knows, it could be a little bit worse than we expected. And of course it was a bit of a bittersweet pill because um, despite the, the rightful loss of the Trump campaign, which is something that hopefully will turn the Republican Party um, a bit towards introspection and realizing where they might have gone wrong over the last four or five years. Instead of that, um, what we saw was a heap of radicalized Trump supporters breaking windows, smashing their way into the Capitol building, uh, ransacking offices and, and charging into the Senate and trying to break into the House chamber as well. It was really distasteful stuff, stuff that you would expect from sort of third world countries as they underwent coups, not the largest um, democratic uh, developed nation in the world. I was expecting riots in the streets. I, I never foresaw that they would get into the, the legislature. It's incredible. It's um, a complete dereliction of um, security, really. I know there's a much wider issue of Trump potentially encouraging it or whatever, but, you know, there's a security issue. My main concern is going forward, you'd hope that we'd have a period of introspection within the Republic Republican Party. But I saw this morning that a snap... I think it was a YouGov poll, actually showed that more Republican supporters backed the coup, the break-in uh, into Congress, than opposed it. 45% supported it, 43% opposed it. And if that is the legacy of Trump in America, the Republican Party establishment is going to have a hell of a battle on its hands to reform the mindset of the grassroots and get them back to a logical sense of being. But there is hope, of course, because we can look at the mirror image of the Republican Party over this side of the Atlantic, which, of course, has been the Labour Party over the last few years that was taken over by a madman and, and radicalised its supporters, um, who, until very recently, all still believed in the cult of Jeremy Corbyn. And they and they followed that and, and they had, had very peculiar views. Um, but the sort of strong horse theory of politics is that as soon as there's another figurehead, a whole heap of those people who did look 
look radicalized actually follow the strong horse and they're only there because that's the, what they think everyone else is doing or everyone they associate or follow is doing um and so just as it looks like jeremy corbyn is now persona non grata within the vast majority of the labor party having been their hero just this time last year perhaps the republican party will follow a similar course with donald trump well that's very optimistic but uh, uh, my fear is that a sort of Trumpian uh, saboteurs will be there in every primary. So anybody who deviates from the Trump uh, worldview or Trumpian way of doing business will be sabotaged in the primary. So uh, I'm not sure it's going to be that easy. Just as it's not easy for Starmer to offload his left-wing loonies. Well, there's a depressing thought. Um, Shall we move on to something slightly lighter to round off the podcast, which is a freedom of information request you got your hands on, Kalgi? Yeah, I'm not sure it's a lighter thought because unfortunately we're going to close the podcast thinking about the porn habits of civil servants and special advisors. Uh, We saw wonderful uh, FOI details which showed that number 10's Wi-Fi connection had seen 1,700 successful visits to hardcore porn sites during the Theresa May ministry between 2016 and 2019. Um, in fact, that was that was only the half of it because there'd actually been 2,300 requests, quite a few of which uh, were blocked. The most popular by far was a, a, a website called Literotica, which had 637 successful requests. And well, the way I contextualise this was, of course, the deep irony that in Theresa May, we'd had quite an authoritarian prime minister who had been trying to instigate a porn ban for the whole of the country. And yet number 10's filters couldn't even block employees from accessing porn on work devices. Wow. Interesting what a, what a note. On that list, by the way. <laughs> Ones I've never heard what? of before. Wow. Wow. What a note to end the podcast on. But there we will leave you. So um, don't forget to subscribe to us, whether it's on YouTube, where you can actually watch this podcast. A lot of people don't know that, but you can watch us and our lovely faces talk through all the news every week on our YouTube channel. But also do join the thousands of others listening on Apple podcasts or on Google podcasts or or wherever you get your podcasts from. So don't forget to follow us, give us a five star rating if you can, and we'll see you next week.